Welcome to this week's episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and this week's episode, unfortunately, is about COVID-19 because it is still here and I didn't think it would be, but it is. And here to give us all the information and bring us up to date with everything we need to know about the virus and its treatments is Professor Luke O'Neill. My absolute favourite person to have in the studio, and I don't say this to all the boys, (laughs) (laughs) Professor Luke O'Neill. Thank you. I didn't think when I started my podcast by interviewing you back in, was it March or April, that I would be on my third episode with you asking the same question. <laughs> what is Ground, the story Groundhog Day, with coronavirus? Please very, very happy to help. But give me some good news. Well, it keeps moving, doesn't it? That's amazing, isn't it? We were all hoping by now, weren't we, that we'd have crushed the curve and be dancing, you know, and well, we'd somehow you, come out of it. Were you, as a scientist, did you sort of know before we all did that this was not going to be something where we'd have the schools back open by Easter? I did. I did in truth, because I remember, I think I told you maybe one of the last times I met this guy in January who is a coronavirus expert, he said, this is going to be a nightmare. He said 70% of the world will be infected by this virus, you know. And what percentage are we at now? That's a good question. It wouldn't be 70 anyway, you know. I mean, there were unknowns back then. It might have been like SARS. Yeah. Which could be shut down quicker because of the symptomatic spread, remember, because you can isolate people with symptoms. The most pernicious thing, as you know, is asymptomatic spread. So you could be infected now talking to me and neither of us would know it, you know. Now, luckily, we're, we're socially distanced, so we're unlikely to pick it up off you. But that asymptomatic thing is the shocker for us, really. And then, yeah, I mean, it's a very contagious virus. Very hard to stop a contagious thing with the best win in the world, you know. Even, I mean, some countries have done it to some extent, I suppose. What countries but, uh, are doing well? Well, New Zealand did great, as we know, New Zealand did very well. And they I know a, that we're taking you out of your lab as well and you have your cup of tea, so feel free to take I do your drink. I do have my cup of tea. Having, this is like you, a lunch break yeah, for me. That's you can right. work away sipping your yeah, tea. The listeners yeah. won't mind. And we're just five minutes from my lab, isn't it? Very handy. Yeah, literally, literally five minutes. Uh, New Zealand did great. They crushed the curve and kept it down, you know. Because China, they closed all their borders, right? Like they yeah. were very strict. Because I think people here are like, why can't we just have the zero rate policy like New Zealand but I don't think that people are willing to do the things that New Zealand no. had to do to do that. It's it's a kind of a cultural thing in a way. China, there's, there's a billion people in the world now out of any viral problem. They've eliminated the virus, right? So that's a seventh of the world's population now free of the virus. And we can look at where those countries are and ask what they did. China are the best example. It was a police state. They had the most severest sort of lockdown, if you like, Facial recognition technologies, drones overhead shouting at people to go back indoors. They separated families, um, you know, com- with compulsory whatever law. So, oh, it was a real horrendous. I mean, that, you can't do that in other countries. We're not a police state. Next in the list are places like South Korea and New Zealand. Severe, strict repression. You know, they went for zero COVID, I guess, those places and managed to do it. Now, the question is, will it bump back in those places? Because, you know, we've seen New Zealand, there have been a couple of outbreaks, you know. So, So, is the only way that it can get back in then is if the border opens again and someone brings it in? Like, COVID can't lie dormant in the corner of a room. Exactly. It only lasts, well, in humans, it'll last for two or three weeks, then your immune system kills it. Right. Completely, by the way. You get what's called sterilizing immunity, so that's good. Uh, But you can catch it again, can't you? Well, that's the next big question, which we're in the middle of as well, by the way. We'll so it does linger for three weeks or so. Now, remember, the other disturbing development, I guess we might have spoken at last, was the long COVID prospects. So there's yes. no doubt people have persistent symptoms. Our most downloaded podcast is a podcast I did with an anonymous nurse who caught COVID and she talked about what it was like and how she still has palpitations, shortness of breath. She's only 27, 28. Yeah. Um, and this long, and she's still off work 
by the way, for listeners who are following her story, she is still off work. The doctors won't sign her back on because she still has these symptoms, these palpitations and... Is that long COVID? That's long COVID, yeah. Now, now, you see, the thing about this is it does happen with other viruses, other infections. A famous one is Lyme disease, actually. And I've had a few people contacting me about Lyme. Oh, yeah, so Lyme is bitten a t- by a tick. It's a tick-borne disease. Bacteria is in the tick. It's called Borrelia. I did work on Lyme years ago. The bacteria infects you and then causes vicious disease. It's like arthritis initially. And then you clear it and you have symptoms that go on for months and months and months. So some pathogens do this, you see. And Lyme patients now are looking at long COVID going, I've got that, but it was caused by Lyme. And of course, the hope there, by the way, is that if we can crack long COVID in, you know, COVID-19, it might help other diseases. So in other words, it's not especially unusual that you see these long terms. The flu does that. If it's severe flu, people are wiped out sometimes for three or four months, for instance. So, And we don't quite know what's going on there. It's a bit of a mystery because the, the bug has gone away. Yes. So, so the you're idea, no longer contagious. No, you're clean of the bacteria or the virus. So we think what's happening is your immune system's been reset during the fight, if you like, and now you're on a bit of a hair trigger. And what would be a benign thing like a small infection of some kind sets you off again. That's one. That's so it's like your immune system has post-traumatic stress. Precisely, yeah. So yeah. any sort of noise makes it shake. Exactly. Or, or it might be a type of autoimmunity where your immune system attacks your own tissues now. And we, we, that's my expertise specifically as autoimmune disease. So maybe the immune system now for some reason begins to recognize bits of your own body as foreign and begins reacting, you know, and then you get the symptoms. So it's a mystery in essence though what causes these long, long-term symptoms I guess from these diseases. The second big mystery is how many people get it. Now, studies vary. Some are saying one in five. Get what? Long Long COVID. COVID. Some are saying one in ten. We have to have a look at that. If it's a large number of people, Stephanie, this is as important as death, which is the worst thing, of course, for COVID-19 is people dying. But what if one in five have symptoms that go on for months and months and months? That's a really dangerous virus to let loose on the earth, you know? So it's something they're watching very closely in hospitals and trying to... to, If we're lucky, it won't be any different to other infections and there'll be a certain percent of people, you see. But but the things at the moment look like it's worse than, than other infections. And how does does that change how we deal with it or is it just another sad piece of information we can tack up on the wall of things we know about COVID? We'll get the treatment in early. Now, now the progress has been good there. So, so there's three drugs now seem to be doing something in hospitals. So if you end up in hospital, right. doctors have an option now to give you different things that they wouldn't have had, say, six months ago. What are the three? Dexamethasone is the big one. Now, that is a steroid, which is anti-inflammatory. Now, steroids are well known. You inhale them if you have asthma, for instance. Yeah. You, know, you rub them in your skin if you have a nasty eczema. So steroids have been known since the 50s. What do they su- actually do? Suppress. Well, they're natural. Your body makes them natural. They're called glucocorticoids. Yeah. Your adrenal glands make them. When you're stressed or injured, to try and dampen things down a bit, you see. So they were known as a natural thing. Okay. And dexamethasone is a, you know, a medicinal form of a natural hormone, I suppose. And you're leveraging, if you like, a natural off switch in your immune system, I suppose. And then dexamethasone was tried and it worked really well for people on ventilators, especially the more severe cases. Uh, it's probably a 20-30% effect, which doesn't and sound like a lot. So that reduces your immune system so your immune system stops fighting something it doesn't need to fight. Exactly. It stops the inflammatory process that's gone out of control, you see. So okay. when you're on a ventilator, your whole body is in this inflamed state. But you don't see. you need to be having a heightened immune system to be fighting the virus? 
You do. This is the one of the key concepts we have in immunology, to be honest. It's a bit like the Goldilocks effect, we call this, is a good analogy. If it's too hot, you're going to get inflammation and it's going to go into overdrive, right? If it's too right. cold, you're not mounting a response at all. Okay. you got to be in the middle, you see. And that, that tipping point is, is, is the key thing that we look at a lot and we still don't fully know why some people tip over into being too hot, you see. That's another bit of a mystery. That can happen with high-dose virus. So if, so if someone gets a massive amount of virus on board, that goes into way into overdrive, you see, and then you get a terrible, you know, inflammatory consequences of that. On the other hand, older people, it can be a bit of a low dose of virus and their body's a bit different because they're older. They have less breaks now because, you know, their body is getting a bit older and then the inflammatory thing can begin to get a foothold, you see. So, and dexamethasone can repress that inflammation. And what it means is great. I mean, it means that where five people would have died, there's four, if you know what I mean. So right, 20% okay. decrease, which is something, you know. What's the other treatment? The other then is a drug called remdesivir, which you may have mentioned before. That's antiviral. Again, about a 20% effect there. But last week, they combined that with another anti-inflammatory called barcitinib, right? Now, barcitinib was discovered for arthritis, interestingly. And some is arthritis of the, a virus? No, it's another inflammatory disease. You're, you're okay. Just an, it's an, inflammation so it's in your joints. Yes, yeah, it's just an anti-inflammatory. Okay. So, and that combination seemed to work better than either one on their own. So okay. when they gave people the double whammy, if you like, that worked. And a 30, 40% effect there maybe in that trial. So, And these are good trials that they're done properly. They're double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. And so, are these trials just down to an innovative doctor being like, you know what, I'm just going to try this on this patient? Or is it like more of a clinical trial that someone has to sign up to? Well, there's always a bit of suck it and see about these things. So, it, <laughs> right. honest to God, it sounds terrible. You think a scientist would, would be more empirical than that. But, uh, well, the antiviral is a no-brainer because that kills the virus. Yeah. And the only question is, will it kill the virus in humans? And it did a bit. Didn't do a great job of that, but did something. HIV, we fantastic antiviral drugs for HIV. Kills the virus completely, you know. And then we know people with HIV are living to a ripe old age, you see. So, the hope is we'll get an antiviral to kill this virus. It's a different virus, so you can't use the same drugs. Although they've tried anti-HIV drugs in COVID-19 and saw a bit of an effect, interestingly. So, so the antiviral is a no-brainer. Anti-inflammatory, there's a load of complex inflammatory pathways in the body, okay. which is my bread and butter, of course. And which one do you pick? And they have a range of anti-inflammatories, and they're trying them all. They're almost going through them. And like is an inventory. that at the moment something people are looking to more so than a vaccine? What what's news on what's new on the vaccine front, Luke? Yeah, well, it's all happening at the same time. It's great. I mean, all, all these approaches are being taken simultaneously, and the, the, there's four there's four sort of what's the word we use weapons on the four fronts is bad analogy. Yeah, in the war, okay. Antivirals is number one. Can we kill the virus or not? Which would be brilliant, right? And therapeutics, like drugs that you might take to slow down damage, right? That's the that's one front. The vaccine is the second front, of course, very important. The third is just the medieval stuff, distancing. And you could, I mean, if this virus was around 200 years ago, we'd be, we'd be quarantining everybody. You know, that, those actions were taken were around 100 years ago. But also, if it was 200 years ago, we wouldn't be living so densely populated. We wouldn't be having pubs. We wouldn't, you know, like... And there'd be a death toll and we would have just sucked it up, you see because yeah. that's the way it happened in previous plagues. We did have it a hundred years ago with the Spanish flu. We did indeed. We absolutely know there's all plagues through history. So, But that, that third thing is just stuff that you don't need to know any science for. You know, yeah. you just separate people out and quarantine villages and all that kind of thing and wash your hands, you know. And the fourth is testing, tracing, isolating. That's the fourth front in the, in the war. If that gets much better, 
In other words, if I could give you a test right now and within 10 minutes tell you if you're positive, that's superb because you can go home, you know, and ho- yeah. or you have it in your house before you go out the door in the airports or in schools. Rapid testing. And we're moving towards that, by the way. There's great. What country is there. best at that? Israel have, well, the science behind it. Israel have made the most progress. They've devised two or three really interesting rapid tests. The US as well. See, every, every big drug company has a diagnostics division anyway. And when you go yeah. to hospital, have your blood taken, there's all these tests, you know, and all these drug companies make those ways of testing for things. Okay. So they're, they're very good at this, basically. They're all working help with other to get a really quick, you know, well, we have the testing at the moment is there, but it takes a bit of time. It's a bit laborious still, the PCR test, you see. So we need... What's PCR 15, for? That's polymerase chain reaction. So what that measures is the, the RNA, the virus's recipe to make more of a safe, it's called an RNA, RNA. It's a bit like DNA. Yeah. You read the RNA with this PCR test. Okay. That's what we currently are being swabbed. Like that's the what swab. you're swabbed for, yeah. precisely. Okay. And that takes about two, three hours, really, I suppose. Although they get, they're getting better at that. So they're spe- that's been speeded up now. I mean, that can get down to an hour. Yeah. You see. But you can't do it at home. The machine is very elaborate to measure this stuff, you know. So if they had a rapid test where you could just, you know, almost like a pregnancy test, you could pee or spit onto something. Exactly. They'd be like, no, you're good to go. Precisely. But is there any point in that if the virus takes time to incubate? Well, it, it, it's it's useful in a sense that what what we have to what we will move to if this continues beyond six months. Do you think it's going to, to continue God, beyond six? Well, months? let's say the vaccine doesn't happen, or if it, if it does happen, it's suboptimal, right? We can't have this going on forever, can we? So, so, so testing is the answer. So, what you'll do is you'll take a sample, and maybe two or three times a week, you'll test yourself for the virus. And if you're positive, you stay home. Now, remember, staying home for two weeks, your body clears the virus. It's great. Yeah. Or secondly, if you get sick, you go to hospital, and you get looked after. So, in other words, test, testing is definitely in, in, in the future if, if we see any more delays with the vaccine. Now, I think, you know, we may have testing anyway, even if a vaccine comes along, because it'll help. Tell me about the vaccine. So, the last I heard about the vaccine was um, it was being paused because someone got sick in a clinical trial, but then it was started again. Will you tell us what happened there or how yep. the whole wo- thing works? That was the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. There's loads of drug companies, of course, um, in the, the middle of all this. And we yeah. mentioned them all as much as we can, so as we're not showing a conflict of interest, because I'm involved in a few drug companies. And, oh, okay. Well, I work for companies on the anti-inflammatory, not the vaccine side. So. Okay. And, and I mean, so all the companies are doing it, right? That's the first thing. And, and that's fantastic, because one of them is going to crack it. But AstraZeneca, they're a Swedish-UK company. With, they've taken the Oxford vaccine that was announced very early on and they, they're running a huge trial. I think it's 30,000 people. Who now, have COVID? Uh, no, no, you protect them and then you put, let them lose oh, in sorry, the community. Oh, sorry, vaccines, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Now what they have is 15,000 are given the vaccine and 15,000 are given a control vaccine, interestingly. It's the same, what we call a vector without the piece of the virus in it and that's a good control. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So let them loose in the community and then sadly it. you want the ones not vaccinated to get infected, you know, okay. <laughs> and the ones that are the vaccine to be protected and you're looking for a 50% effect there, they've said. So if, if you get half the number of people being infected or vaccinated compared to the control, then you know it's working, you know. Now they did report, yeah, two weeks ago, what's called a serious adverse event. Now that means someone on the trial got very sick. And what it was, was I think called transverse myelitis, which is inflammation of your spinal cord. Wow. Which is serious, you know, and the person would have had tingling, maybe even paralysis. Now, they're, they, they've recovered. They're out of hospital. It's fine. Now, this isn't unusual. If you take 15,000 people and just look at them for a week, you'll find someone sick during it, you know, because yeah. there's so many people, you know. 
And maybe this person had some underlying thing like MS or some other disease. So that, that, what they're saying is that that issue with the spine could have happened if this person wasn't taking part in a trial. Exactly. And what they do then, they look closely at the person. It's a good example of how trials work. And we're seeing, we wouldn't normally see this. I mean, what's happening is everything's being released all the time now because it's such a serious yeah. thing. Normally, wait right to the end of the trial and then you re- reveal these things, you see. So in this particular case, they'd look at the patient closely. It mustn't have been that severe in the end. And then secondly, looked at everybody else on the trial. Any hint of this in other people? No, there wasn't. Okay. That's, my, that's my suspicion because they restart the trial and off you go again. So, and then we keep hoping now. I mean, they're looking very closely. How can they stop the trial in that if I inject 15,000 people with something and send them out in the community, you can't stop that. No, but they hadn't reached the full number. You see, I think oh, they okay. hit maybe 23,000 at that point. You don't vaccinate anybody else, you know. And okay. Then, then, okay. then you try to finish it off. But they can still take the data from... Oh, they can. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, interestingly, they haven't restarted in America, only in the UK and in Brazil. It's been done in three different places. Why ha- Why is that? That's a good question. Now, your your conspiracy theorists go, something has happened or the Americans have seen something we haven't, you know. Yeah. It could be politics, you know. The, the Americans have their own vaccines in development, although maybe not, I don't know, but... Who knows that the, the, the Americans haven't restarted. The Americans have the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. They're two separate companies. And now a fourth one. There was good news today. At least another vaccine is going to phase three. It's called, it's Johnson & Johnson are the company. Yeah. And they're going to recruit. They're Irish, aren't they? Or they're in Ireland? They're in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All these companies are in Ireland. They, oh, okay. They, they production. They make things here. Johnson & Johnson are a great company. They make really great anti-inflammatories. Again, I've had dealings with them over the years. And they're very good at making vaccines. And, and this particular vaccine, their version of the vaccine is interesting because it's one shot, not two. Other vaccines, you need a booster. Mm-hmm. And that means it's a bit more convenient. Secondly, you don't need to freeze it to keep it fresh. Most vaccines you keep in the fridge or freezer to keep it fresh. This one you don't need to freeze. So again... It, How is that though? It's just chemically slightly different. Okay. So some of them have different component parts and some need freezing and some don't. Okay, it's Jibs here from Pints of Malt. <laughs> so our podcast is basically a group of Irish Nigerian lads who tell their stories growing up in Ireland as well as Nigeria and we share our experiences with all of y'all we also had a bit of comedy as well you know to get y'all laughing get y'all through the week in these tough times that we are in so y'all sit back and just you know enjoy the show as Jib said we're the Pints of Mark podcast you can find us on all streaming platforms including the Headstuff Network say a vaccine did become available how long, like, we've never had a sort of a global vaccination project happen where we're all looking for this thing at the same time. Yeah. How do they, one, prioritise who gets it, yeah. two, roll it out? Like, right. Well, we did have it before with smallpox and polio, but that, that took decades. I wasn't there. Decades, right? <laughs> polio is a fascination, Stephanie. So 1950s, two people discovered the polio vaccine. Right. Salk is one of the famous guys, you know. And that vaccine... Made, do it together? No, they were separately. One is injectable and one's oral, actually. Oh, so. wow, okay. And th- th- you can't overemphasize, definitely, the importance of that vaccine. Because before it was launched, 20,000 people a year in America were paralyzed by that virus. Okay. Okay. A year or two out, zero people are paralyzed because the vaccine protected them. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. So, so when you hear about people saying don't use vaccines, you don't want to go back to those days. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. 
we're nearly close to polio elimination. Africa is now free of polio. It's fantastic. So, and smallpox, we got rid of that in, in the 70s in the end. But as you said, it took decades. It's not like we're going to. Now, remember, we never got rid of measles, naturally, or flu. A vaccine is needed to fully eliminate an infection because it's always lurking somewhere. And there's always a vulnerable group coming up where children are born, you know, who are yeah. naive. So that's why, yet again, the answer is the vaccine. You won't get herd immunity without a vaccine is, is the view of immunologists, you see, naturally, you know. Yeah. So so it's, it's just that's a f- fact. So you won't get herd immunity because the herd is always growing or changing. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And the virus goes into a different herd and then comes back into your herd again. You know, now, you, okay. of course, you, it's good to get a buildup of immunity in the community anyway, because the whole thing begins to go down a bit, which you want, you know. Mm-hmm. But flu comes back every year for reason. Of course, it changes slightly, which makes it a bit trickier. You know? Is COVID changing slightly? No, that's, that's one of the pieces of good news, actually. There's six or seven good things about this virus. And one is doesn't change. very slow. Changer. What else is good? Children don't die. Now, remember, that wasn't the case with 1918. That, that yeah. was killing young people. It's dumb luck in a way. It, it could have killed young people. Wouldn't that be devastating? So it's, it's and now it's tragic, of course, the people it does kill. But can you imagine if it was also affecting babies and young children? That'd be terrible, for instance. You know? But um, I think the, w- the way the vaccine is going to go next, as you you know, had you roll it out, they're all over that. They know it's going to be the biggest challenge in human health ever to vaccinate 7 billion people, right? So they're getting ready and production will go up. And again, these drug companies are great at making vaccines. If Santa can deliver presents all over the world in That's one right. night, I bet he's he can vaccinated. deliver the vaccine. <laughs> what about the reindeers? <laughs> what about Maybe the they're rain? infected. <laughs> um, so, so that's the vaccine. And do you think that, will it be a case that like the country that comes up with the vaccine will have, like, is it going to be a political thing? That's the next fear. Yeah, and no, they're trying to say it's not. The EU have banded together now. We're part of an EU consortium. Yeah. Every EU country gets equal access. To the vaccine when it emerges. But what They're if like the UK come up with it and they've got Brexit? That's the next question. And the US, because remember, the US may get there first. They've got great scientists, great clinical people over there. So mm-hmm. I think the Pfizer one is out front, by the way, at the moment. And very interestingly, they put a woman in charge of that vaccine who I met. Yeah. Her name is Janssen. She developed the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, for cervical cancer. You know the HPV one that we yeah. wrote it? That's her discovery. Brilliant vaccinologist, one of the best in the world. She actually made, like, created, she, dis- she, she discovered created that vaccine. Because yeah, they that's say, her claim to fame, you know, when they say like someone discovered a vaccine, it's not discovering though, is it? Like it's creating. Yeah, like, the, the guy who discovered it was in Australia actually, got Colleen Fraser, who I know as well. He, he was the first to make the HPV vaccine. But what what did and, Jensen do then? Well, she got it off him and then okay. made it into a medicine if you like because oh, it's right, tricky okay. then and she would have modified it a bit now and made it more optimal she would have optimised it and then ramped up production done all the safety because she when he made it it was an experimental vaccine really you know he, he would have vaccinated a few people and then he licenses it in, from his university okay. into Pfizer and they've got the deep pockets you see to take it all the way to the clinic and then she led that programme now it's amazing achievements. There's many steps in this process. Many things can fall over. The organisational skills alone are massive for the trials and the safety. So she's famous, actually, for getting that Gardasil to the market. And that's a fantastic vaccine. I think it's got 99% efficacy, that vaccine. And she, is, so she's now leading the Pfizer yep, vaccine. Exactly. She's in charge of the whole thing and she's knocking heads together and getting it to work, you know. So again, if you put money on it, you'd say they might get there first because of, because of Pfizer or a great company anyway. She's in the middle of it, driving it forward, you know. And when someone gets there first, when do you think that'll be? Well, now, what's striking today, literally about an hour ago, because I'm always checking my bloody phone, uh, Sinovac are a Chinese company. 
They're running a big trial. They say in two weeks they're going to get the readout. Okay, so we're going to get the first, if they're tr- if it's correct, the first phase three readout for any vaccine might be in two or three weeks' time. And right. how many phases do we need? That's the last phase. So if the readout comes in two weeks and it's yep. like, hey, this is good to go. If it's gangbusters, we all go, we don't trust that. <laughs> you know, you know you, scientists are skeptical at the yeah. best of times. Um, but we look at that very closely because they're, and, and the other vaccines that are in development aren't that different to that one. You know, so that, that could be a good harbinger. And do you kind of, tr- like, is there c- countries that you trust? Like, would you trust the data out of China as much as you trust the data out of yeah. the US? Or? Well, getting back to your previous question, it gets political. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So you got to be careful now. Because didn't Russia say they had a vaccine? Well, this is the other thing. Yeah, the Russians have launched the vaccine. The Chinese and the Russians forgot they didn't do the phase three. They actually approved a vaccine and ran the phase three in parallel. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a dangerous thing to do because the phase three is is about safety as much as anything else, you know, because it isn't fully proven. So we saw that as a bit dicey. And their new vaccines never tried in humans before. But the Russians go, look, it's like like there's a war going on. We're going to abandon our normal practices here to to win the war. Yeah. Now, again, those Russian vaccines, there's one big one in development. That should read out in the next month or two as well. So you're looking at, you know, October, November, December. These four trials, certainly three of them, and a couple of others in China will read out, which means you open the box and say, has it worked? Okay. Mm-hmm. Then the question becomes, how good is it? How many patients were protected? Is there any risk that they weren't following best practice? And th- these are the questions in people's minds, you see. Talk to me about reinfection. Yep, that's the other big mystery, of course. Because I heard that someone in Hong Kong was reinfected. Yeah, yeah. well, again, nothing surprising here. So it's like anything in biology, there's going to be a range of responses. The, okay. the famous normal distribution, you know. So because every biological trait is like that. So what the prediction is this, some will get reinfected. For definite, right? Some will be. Is that because they didn't get it a lot the first time, or because they're not strong enough, or what? What are the factors? Loads of variables is the problem. It's it's a true scientific issue in a sense. So it could be dose of virus. If you mm-hmm. get less dose next time, you won't get sick. You know, if you get a high dose, you might, for instance. Yeah. It could be your immune system isn't as good the next time because you're fatigued or you've maybe a different infection on board at the same time, you know. Nutritionally, you mightn't be in the best of shape. So that could be another reason why you get reinfected and someone else doesn't, you see. Okay. so. And then thirdly, how much immunity did you get the first time around? And that'll be variable as well. So because of the first time you got sick, you know, because you yeah. might have had low dose the first time and that didn't really allow your immune system to take off. So there's so many sort of variables here to try and pin it down. So then you look for, look for data. And now we're looking very closely at these studies. I think there's about 10 people now that got reinfected for definite. Okay. And they can prove that, okay? And of those 10, I think a third were fine. No symptoms, perfectly fine. A third had a bit of a severe disease and a third were kind of in the middle. And that's what you'd predict. You'll see a range. Now, if we end up with two thirds doing reasonably well, getting reinfected, that's good. Less people in hospital. You know. Relatively relatively well compared to how they did the first time? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and overall, of course, anyway, if, if let's say the bottom line is a reasonable percentage of people upon reinfection won't get sick and if they do get sick, they won't be too bad. That's not a bad result. Okay. But Whereas can, first time round, a lot of people got sick. You know, you're compar- absolutely comparing. It's a numbers game, you know. So you're kind of comparing the, the, two, the two groups, I suppose, and looking for numbers to be in your favour. But if someone gets reinfected and they are less severe in their in the disease can they then spread it again to somebody else yeah that's the problem and the answer would probably be yes so it will run keep running in the community then you know and it will be spreading but immunity gradually builds up getting back to our herd immunity idea 
if there's gradual building up of resistance, as we call it, by the but way. But if people can get reinfected, thing. then there isn't really an immunity building up. A, per- it, well, a percent will. It's okay. all about the R value, remember. So if you get the R value below one, it begins to go away. How do you drop the R value below one? You keep people apart and they don't infect each other. That's great. Or there's a bit of immunity. And there might be 10 people in a room where previously eight got infected. Now it's six because two have a bit of immunity in them. You know what I mean? So that's a way the vaccines bring the R to zero. The R for smallpox is now zero because it never does now more smallpox, you know. Flu or value is below one when you vaccinate the population. So, so the reason for vaccines is to get people in the community who can't get infected and then it spreads less. What's your biggest, what's the thing that alarms you most about COVID in Ireland at the moment? Well, the dreaded hospital numbers, definitely. That's the most important number to look at, remember. Okay. Case numbers are not that informative, strangely. And many of us are saying we shouldn't be reporting them all the time because a reasonable percent of those people aren't infectious. Okay, so just because it's 300 cases tonight, half of them might be like you and me. They're not infectious because the level of virus is too tiny in them. That PCR test is really sensitive, you know, it's amplifying up the thing. So now we need to have the case numbers. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we shouldn't worry if it's 300 tonight. What we worry about is, does that translate into hospitalisation? And why is it not translating into hospitalisation so much now than it was in... March, April, May. Well, it's our, our big worry is we don't know. I mean, certainly in Spain it is. It's almost like night follows day. Okay. If you have a thousand cases on a Wednesday, you can predict X number will end up in hospital. It's, it's a terrible business in a sense because it's almost like a mathematical certainty. Although we still don't fully know. And if it is younger people, they'll fight, fight the virus and won't end up in hospital. So again, it's all about that vulnerable group. They're, that's the one to watch because there's a much more higher chance of them ending up in hospital than the younger group, you see. Because we're seeing an increase in cases, but we're not seeing an increase in deaths. That's right, yeah. Is that because it's affecting younger people? Yeah. Or, okay. That's one one reason. So so young people might end up in hospital. Or is it because we're getting better at treating it? It's it's both. Yeah, it's exactly right. So younger people could end up in hospital. They're unlikely to die. So the death rate in the hospital goes. You're measuring death rate, remember. Total number of people in hospital, how many die. If it's young people, hardly any are going to die. In the previous period, a lot more older people ended up in hospital and the more vulnerable. And it's not just the old, it's people with diabetes. And we were also, we didn't know as much about the virus, so we weren't able to treat it as efficiently. Exactly. I mean, simple things that, see, doctors are great at observing patients and deciding what to do based on past experience. Yeah. So making them prone, lying on their side, that had an effect. Don't use ventilators as much. Use this CPAP device to get oxygen. Oh, that's beginning to help. The other big help is anticoagulants. Okay. Because we know the blood clots with this virus. And in fact, that's especially troublesome for this virus, much more so than flu. so. So again, you give people anticoagulants as soon as they come in. And that'll stop the blood clotting. And again, that's having a, you know, a knock-on effect to stop the death rate happening, I suppose. But that's the big fear. The, the, the only fear we have now, actually, maybe, maybe that's overstatement, but the major fear we have yeah. is people ending up in the ICU and dying. Okay. That's the big fear. And secondly, long COVID, right? Yes. What we don't want happening is all these young people getting infected and not ending up, not, not ending up in hospital, but having symptoms for three, four, five, six months at the prime of their lives. Yeah. You know? One then, one woman said in her twenties, I saw this. I wrote about this recently. She felt like she she feels like she's eighty years of age. This woman, I can't walk up the stairs. And she's yeah. a young woman in her twenties. So. It's the same with the nurse. Yep, she just yep. feels, yeah, like she's aged. That's right, exactly. Yeah. So we can't. We, we don't want that. You know, the the bottom line is that they don't get this virus. <laughs> That's the bottom line because it could be terrible, or or you know, it could it's end so up in unknown. Hospital. It's like a lucky bag. Those, the unknowns, precisely. That's why we all, us medics and scientists, lean towards caution with this because of the unknowns.
I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, the thing that's stressing me most about the virus is that different countries are dealing with it in different ways and people in our country are getting angry because we're not dealing with it the way they would like us to be dealing with it where they've seen in a different country. But I think a lot of people underestimate the fact that we have, I think at the start of this pandemic, and I'm going from memory here, we had like 230 ICU beds in the entire country. We have millions of people in this country and we had 230 ICU beds. That's it. I think now they've increased it to 280 maybe. Um, But that means that at any one time we can only save the lives of about 280 people who need ICU care. You can start getting very angry. I read the same things as you and I'm sick people saying, why didn't we do like Sweden? You know, they didn't lock down, did they? Sweden has so many ICU beds. That's the main reason Sweden could take a chance. Yeah. To quote Abba. There's a good quote for you. Um, anyway, the Swedes could take a chance because they have a fantastic hospital system. It's like X number of times better than ours. Now, we, we couldn't have taken that chance. We had to lock down because there was a real risk of our hospitals being overwhelmed. Look at Northern Italy is a good comparison, actually. Yeah. So. Now, in retrospect, you know, we have to say lockdown was a very good thing. And, and comparing us to Sweden is a bit of a nonsense. It's not scientifically accurate because there's so many differences between our countries. Like the famous one, Stephanie, is the pubs are open there, but nobody goes to the pub in Sweden because it's too expensive. Yeah. You know? yeah. So not like here, you know. So um, so there's big differences here, right? Comparing countries is always a bit scientifically unsound. How do you feel about the pubs being open again? So-called wet pubs. Well, I always felt there was a role for the pubs beyond you know, the, the things we all think were going in there to get jarred every night type yeah. territory, you know, and they had a community role and especially rural pubs. I, I was I was saying they should open those even three months ago. Yeah. Low risk, not many people. They're socially distancing. It's two L fellas 10 feet apart anyway at the bar, you know. So I always felt the rural pubs deserved to be open. Um, and then, but the worry were the bloody super pubs where the crowds are gathering and not behaving themselves. And the question became very simply, will the publicans manage their environment. Now, I'm not saying they can't, and of course there's fantastic guidelines and the Vintners Association say they will, and we have to hope that's true, I suppose, you know. So, but at the moment, we can't open them. Let's put it that way, way. Because the virus is going up and up and up every day, you know. But they're open. And they're high risk. Well, they are outside Dublin. Yeah. It it depends on the community. Yeah. So as sure as night, again, night, you don't need to be an epidemiologist. If there's always a virus out there, it will get into the pubs. And, be, and there'll be a place where it will spread because that's a high risk environment. It seems to be a case that people aren't making the connection that it's not that the virus is in schools or that the virus is in pubs or in nursing homes. The virus is in people and where people go, the virus goes. Because a lot of people are saying like, oh, there's no COVID in our house. It's like, well, that wouldn't be in your house anyway. It'd be in your mother or your sister or your brother. Exactly. It's, 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 people can't get that down in statistics. It's all very statistical, you see. Yeah. And you're calculating the number of people infected in a community and then trying to predict, based on statistics, the likelihood of, of it spreading in that community. And that number of cases per day is useful because it tells us it's still out there. It's still spreading. Those numbers are going up, right? That has to mean it's not quite out of control, but it's certainly burgeoning in that community. And it will get into places where crowds gather. And the second thing we've learned in spades, and this this was clear early on, but the last couple of weeks, the data keeps coming from epidemiology. Only one in five people are inf- infect others, if you know what I mean. There's these super spreaders. So one in five people who have it. Spread it. Spread it, okay. Yeah, yeah. and so one person can infect 20. Wow. You see, and then the other four people infect nobody, you know. And we don't fully know why that is. It could be the dose of virus is high when that person goes to the pub, you see, and then it spreads into that pub. So so we know these super spreading events are how it spreads, you see. And one reason Sweden did well is 45% of people live on their own there. You yeah, see. So and they live 
so like their nearest neighbour is that, 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 exactly yeah. that kind of thing so that's another variable that we look at you know but you're right though the virus is in people and and it's very contagious the, the, the next it's going to burn away Stephanie really that, that's the truth of it you know and we have to hope that we will see a bit of immunity as we just discussed building up slowly here and there that'll be a big help to us and that, that, that could happen and the other big development in my view in the last week was a hypothesis and us scientists we love hypothesizing what's a uh, hypothesis it's a theory it's clever, a, a clever idea it's, it's a posh a, word for idea <laughs> it's an educated guess though isn't it's it it's an educated guess yeah yeah so so this is that masks might promote immunity now you might say how the hell can a mask make you immune so it turns out the mask isn't foolproof a bit of virus gets out yeah. low dose maybe 10% gets around the mask and that might infect you say opposite me and you will now have low low dose virus on board that'll get your immune system going sorry so you have a mask on I've got my mask and on and you you've got virus and you haven't say right and I'm, in, and I'm infected so 10% of your virus comes we'll into out. me the mask will trap 90 which is what we want yeah. a little bit gets out mm-hmm. infects you at a low dose okay so a tiny bit of virus gets into you but it's it, it's enough to trigger an immune response without you getting sick okay, okay. and now you get a bit of immunity Okay, so it's like a vaccine, and this is how vaccines worked in the past. In right. fact, this was the famous variolation. Did you ever hear that word? This is a great thing now. No, a woman called Larry, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, yeah, in the 1700s, she was a very interesting person, right? She was due to marry a guy called Clotworthy. There's a great name for you, <laughs> Clotworthy. Clotworthy. He was an Irish lord, he right? was an anticoagulant. Go she, on. Ditched, she ditched old Clotworthy probably because of his name, and went off with Lord Edward Montague. And she became Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And she went. To, he was the ambassador for Turkey, mm-hmm. the British ambassador. He, she went to Turkey with him and she didn't stay in the house doing the cooking. In the community, began helping people. And she, the Turks were using this thing called variolation. So if, if, if someone had smallpox, you would take blister fluid from the lesion in the skin. Oh yeah, and put it and into yourself. To, and, and give that to someone else and, and it would protect them. Right. That became the first vaccine for smallpox. How did someone invent? Isn't that amazing? Like that someone thought, you've got a weeping scab there. Yeah, I'll touch it and then put it on my open wound. Yeah, exactly. And therefore that will yeah. never happen yeah, to precisely. me. Yeah, precisely. Now, the, the problem was one in 50 were given smallpox because you're getting a bit of live virus out, you know. Right. OK. And it was never widely adopted. But that inspired Jenner. Lady Mary deserves the credit for vaccination as much as him. He sees her work. She wrote up about this. Said, Look, this is interesting. Yeah. He, he sees her work and then he uses cowpox, which is a weakened form, if you right. like, of smallpox. And that's the first vaccine. Vaccus. It's, cow. The, it's the same. Oh, cool. That's Bacchus. where the word vaccine comes from because he used cowpox to, to vaccinate. It's the same, I guess, basic concept of these crazy people who have like chicken pox parties where one child gets chicken pox and they bring all their kids yep. to a bouncing castle to well, spread it around so that they all get it at the same time and then and it's kind it's of like over. homeopathy even though there's no science that's a low dose of something remember there's no science homeopathy, homeopathy. you can't bring homeopathy into but, a science discussion strangely those is homeopathy people, not like the memory of water but it's nonsense yeah yeah but it is a low dose of something you know if you give a tiny dose of something that's poisonous, it might protect you against the poison. And that's the same kind of idea with this, it is strange. Right? Okay. But <laughs> can you imagine how um, maybe masks promote variolation? Now, this is a hypothesis. Nobody's proven this yet. Just okay. So, but that's a fascinating idea that you can actually promote immunity through low levels of virus, not making you sick, but training your immune system to fight the bad guy when he comes along is the idea here. So it's yet another reason to wear masks, actually. And it was so at argues, I mean, it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, very eminent journal. They had lots of evidence to suggest this might be the case. So even, like even in animals and hamsters, low dose was protecting them, you know. So there's some, there might be something in it, you know, which I think is an interesting development. Before you leave us, is there anything else we need to know or look out for in the world of COVID? 
yes. before we drag you back in here in another couple of months. Well, let's talk about day by day. We're going to see what happens. I mean, it's I don't know how you feel, but it, it's going on a bit, isn't it? Every oh, day. it's horrendous. Well, all we can do is keep the ship going forward in the way it is because it, science will beat this, there's no question, and it's getting better all the time. And I predict, where are we now? It's the end of September. So if we're lucky, November time, we'll have good vaccine data. Okay, so when we we'll sit have down data, again but we won't months, have, we'll have real data that says this vaccine might work, and then it starts to get rolled out. Okay, now that means January, February, March of next year, they'll vaccinate healthcare workers and the vulnerable, mm-hmm. and then that'll begin to show effects. Hopefully, and then you know, April, May, June, July, it begins to get rolled out for the world, and there could be four or five of them. Wouldn't that be brilliant? And now we see vaccination programs that will have a, a big effect on the fear. I think because once there's a headline, vaccine is working. Yes. We all relax a little bit, which is so important, you know. And governments can relax slightly as well, you see. But the second big development that's coming up next is the therapies are getting better for definite. Okay, that's why people are dying oh, less. So it's becoming less, what's the word, data. for something that kills people? Less, less lethal. Lethal, yeah, yeah. And it's great day. I mean, there's already a couple of trials have been published, initial trials on this. And we're we can also see, see the figures, though. The numbers of deaths, there's like, we're reporting zero deaths today. And and that's quite a, those approaches we're trying at the moment are good, but they aren't that sophisticated, you might say. These are high-tech drugs that are going to protect you, you know. And we're going to see progress there, I predict, because, and these antibodies that you can take, you see, as a therapeutic. Drug companies are great at making antibodies. One really good example is, um, to give people a bit of hope as well as Eli Lilly, that drug company, Mm -hmm. they have a really good antibody that targets the spike protein on the virus. Now, remember the virus... As these spikes sticks into your lungs, this antibody masks like blue tack, you know, and the virus can get in. They're giving that to nursing homes in America as a prophylactic. In other words, you can take this if you're at risk of getting infection because your body is now chock full of antibodies. If you're unfortunate and you inhale a bit of virus, bang, it stops in its tracks. Now, that trial is going to read out probably November. The only issue there is expensive. Right, okay. Drugs are expensive. But if we could get a drug that would protect the vulnerable, we're laughing our heads off because now you can see a situation where let the young people get it, which of course is one of the things that's being mooted, you know. Yeah. We can't do that at the moment. It's far too dangerous. And because if the young people get it, it's only a matter of time before the, the old, old people, people get it. And not but it just we- the young people. Diabetes, cardiovascular. Most people have someone in their house with one of those diseases. What about, do we lock them up in the bedroom? You know, yeah. how, do you, how do you shield them? You know, it's almost impossible. So, so people who advocate shielding, I ask them, give me the number of dead people you think is going to be the goal here because the people will die. And what's the acceptable number of dead people? Yeah. And explain to me how you can shield every household in Ireland where there's someone with an underlying condition, you see. So, so in other words, we can't be depending on that as, as a way out of it. We, uh, my dream, Stephanie, is in six months' time, all this science that we've been discussing will have delivered four or five, six options. And it'll be a bright, shiny future, little medicines that you can take or vaccines that might work. And suddenly then we begin to come out of it and talk about the relief we're going to feel. I mean, it's a bit like, um, I hate to draw an unfortunate analogy, when they dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima. Yeah. I know it's horrible to say that, but yeah. that ended the war, you know. That, that, and people go, oh, the war's over now after all that torture, you know. And but so do you think in like that, that situation, if they have six or seven options, but we don't have a vaccine yet, let's say, we're still going to have to social distance, wear masks, not meet our friends. I Well, it's a good question that I suppose. If there's no vaccine, what, what are we going to do? I mean, therapeutics will help because the death rate goes down. We can relax a bit. We become like Sweden, maybe, right, ultimately. Okay. So you can have 
gatherings of over 50, you can have... Because it's like you're going to catch it, household. but if you catch it, it won't kill you. It won't you. be as bad. That, that's the point I'm making. If governments see a hope here of a therapy or a vaccine, they can take a few more risks right. with their people. Because not, see, the government's number one goal is to stop people dying. You know? Yeah. If you can or say to them... The hospitals being overwhelmed. Exactly. So if you can say, look... You, there's a chance that's not going to happen oh I'd like that for my people because remember all these measures have damaging effects with mental health and all kinds of things anyway so you're trying to you know prevent the, the, the consequences of the actions as well so so I, I, my, my dream is that when we get to Christmas do you think Christmas is going to be like normal no unlikely yeah but then we'd have to just modify our behaviour yeah. and still meet up it's so important for us to socialise as a species so we have to just do it in a different way I suppose uh, this will suit some people who hate Christmas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be delighted. But um, but now we have to have Christmas, don't we? At some level, but it'll be a bit. It'll be very different to the one we're looking at. So but can you imagine in December Christmas? if two or three really robust scientific trials are published, mm-hmm. where there's a real effect of a therapy that's convincing, and a real effect even of a vaccine that's partially effective? That's a good Christmas just for mental health. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's what I'm dreaming for in the next three months, anyway. Well, I hope Santa brings it to you. We might talk to you before then, though. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Luke. Thanks, Stephanie. Always happy to come in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. If you enjoyed it, or you didn't enjoy it, or you learned something from it, or you think someone else should listen to it, I would be so grateful if you would share it on your social media platforms or give it a good rating or a review or a bad review. It all helps to bring the show up in the ratings. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts iTunes, Spotify, wherever, whatever I would really appreciate it we are produced by the Headstuff Podcast Network we record at the podcast studios our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara and our music is by Only Ruin see you again soon very posh Oreo biscuits here today this has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network 